If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And our message today is called The Incarnation, The Hope of the World. One of my favorite things to do is, uh, man, you know, you just, you, you type in on YouTube, you want to look at one video, and it's just this black hole of other related videos, and some of them don't really seem related, but one of my favorite videos to watch is when churches will put out a video, and they'll have children tell the Christmas story. And then they have the adults act it out exactly the way the children do it. And so you can Google that, not right now, after service. Go on YouTube and, and type in kids Christmas or what a kids tell the Christmas story. And it's always funny because you've got these adults that are, you know, just acting it out. And it's so, so funny. Um, and, and then, you know, of course, you ask people, what is Christmas about? And, and most people, I think, would say, well, you know, it's about the birth of Christ, but you know, ask kids, and you might get a, a variety of answers. It's about presents, it's about Santa, it's about this or that. And uh, <clears throat> we know, as adults, obviously you're sitting here in church, you know what Christmas is all about. And yet we can easily be bombarded by our culture, which tries to make Christmas about other things. Commercialism, materialism, and consumerism. But the story of Christmas has nothing to do with those things. And if you really try to wrap your brain around it, the story about God becoming flesh, it is the most remarkable story of all time. There is nothing even remotely like it. No story or idea that we could possibly conjure up could compare to God the Son being born in a human body, living among us, working miracles, teaching deep spiritual truths, hurting the, sorry, not hurting the brokenness, healing the brokenness and hurting people, and dying in our place. This story of God becoming a man is called the Incarnation. And that is what we're talking about today. So we look at John 1, and you have an insert in your bulletin if you want to fill in some blanks. We're looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 today, and I understand that is not a traditional text. But sometimes we do things a little untraditionally around here. But it really is John's Christmas story, if you really think about it. This is what John wrote in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, <clears throat> and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, John chose to begin his gospel account with the exact same phrase that Moses chose to begin his first book of the Bible, Genesis, with, in the beginning. Sometimes when I walk up to people and I tell them a story, I don't start at the beginning. 
because I've already been running through this story in my head. And you may have a husband like that as well. Some of you may have a husband or a wife, maybe, or a teenager. And when they walk up to you, half of the conversation has already taken place in their head. And when they open their mouth and they start to tell you the story, you're only getting from about midway to the end. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Start at the beginning. <clears throat> because otherwise, you need, you need to know the context of what created this situation that they are in. And John did the exact same thing in his gospel account. So if we're going to understand Jesus in a proper context, we have to start at the beginning. And the first thing that John emphasized was, the, number one, his identity. That Jesus Christ is the Lagos of God. And that's how you pronounce that word logos in English, but it's pronounced Lagos in Greek. Now, for most people, they don't have a clue what that means, that Christ is the Word of God, the Lagos of God. And when John said, in the beginning was the Word, they don't immediately know to what or to whom John is referring. In the Old Testament, the patriarchs would give a name to or, or a title to God based on how he interacted with them. Okay? Abraham, you remember the story when Abraham and Isaac are up on the mountain and Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac because God has said you need to uh, kill your son, the one you love, and sacrifice him to me because, you know, we, you know well, we preached that sermon. I won't preach again. So <clears throat> he's about to kill his son and make him a sacrifice and an angel of the Lord appears and stops him from doing so. And all of a sudden, there is a ram that is caught in the bushes that becomes a sacrifice. And so on that mountain, Abraham calls God by a new name. He calls him Jehovah Jireh. And we have, you know, a good song in a minor key, upbeat song, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And uh, because it means the Lord will provide. And so Abraham gave God a new name based on his interaction with him. Um, in Hagar, uh, not in Hagar, but Hagar was in the wilderness with her son Ishmael, and they were dying in the wilderness, and God appeared to her and saved her life. And so she called God El Roi, the God who sees, because God saw her and saw her son dying in the wilderness, and he saved them. And so she gave God a new name. He is Jehovah Rapha to those who whom he has healed. He is uh, Jehovah Shalom for those people who desperately need the peace that only he can bring. And so here, John gave Jesus a, a title in the same manner. This time, it was the name Lagos, or Word. And you might be thinking, okay, I still don't know what that means. But I promise you that you do. Lagos is simply a representation of the whole. Lagos is where we get our English word logo. If I were to show you the logo of Nike, you would immediately recognize the swoosh. The Nike logo represents not just the Nike shoes, but all the products produced by the organization. That logo embodies the entire company. If you saw the logo for the U.S. Navy, 
It would represent not just sailors on boats, but naval, naval aviators and the submarine crews and the cooks and the gunners and all the support staff that makes up the Navy. The logo represents every single person, every office, every job, every task, every accomplishment, every battle. You get the idea. <clears throat> the same is true for Jesus. He is the logo in English or the lagas in Greek that is the physical representation of God. Paul told us this. He said, in him, in Jesus, in Christ, dwells the, all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So if God had a logo like Nike or Pepsi or NASA, it would be Jesus. He is the word that represents God to humanity. That is his identity. The second thing that John emphasized was number two, his dignity. That Jesus Christ shares God's existence. Since John explained that Jesus, the word, was with God and was God, he asserted the claim that Jesus is part of the Godhead. Now, we all Already, most of us, I would think, uh, already knew that, already believed that, already understood that. But this was revolutionary to the first century believers because they didn't immediately assume Jesus was God. Uh, but we understand he was not just some angel that was sent on an errand to earth. He was not simply just a good man. He was not simply just a good teacher. John made the claim at the very beginning of his gospel account that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and he was just as much God as the Father and the Holy Spirit are. Then John demonstrated that claim throughout his gospel with miracles, healings, and moments with Jesus, doing things that only God can do changing water into wine, raising the dead, cleansing the leper with a touch. Now, most people will readily agree with you that Jesus was a good teacher, and he was a profound moral example. They might even agree that should you choose to live your life as Jesus taught, you would be very fulfilled and happy to do so. Yet those same people who assert his morality and his impeccable teaching would also balk at the idea of him being the son of God, which he claimed on numerous occasions to be. The Jehovah's Witnesses claim that the person referred to as the word wasn't actually God, but he was some lesser reality, some lesser deity than God. And some people argue this old Gnostic philosophy that flesh is evil and God, being holy and righteous, could never take on flesh because to do so would be to take on evil. They fail to see how the virgin birth negates their argument. Jesus Christ, throughout all four Gospels, did things that only God could do. And he did the one thing that no angel or human could rightfully do, receive worship from it. He could receive worship because he was God. He shares the same attributes as God because he is God. 
And then when, when the religious leaders accused him of attributing deity to himself, he never denied it. How could he? He knew exactly who he was, and he knew exactly what he had come to do. So when we talk of the dignity of Christ, this refers to his quality. The state of him being worthy, honored, or esteemed. It refers to his position as the second member of the Godhead. It is sad today to see Jesus Christ mocked and ridiculed. He has become a caricature, represented at times as a cartoonish figure known as Buddy Jesus, who just wants you to be his friend. And he desperately needs you to accept him so he'll feel complete. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the second member of the Trinity, is not lacking anything. He does not need us for him to feel complete. We desperately need him for us to be complete. He does not need us for him to be whole. We need him so that we can be whole. It is a confused theology that thinks we could possibly confound the purposes of God or that God needs us. He loves us, yes. He wants us to be saved, absolutely. He wants us to be delivered from the power of sin because he's paid the penalty of that sin. Yes, yes, yes. But he's the God of all creation. He doesn't need us, we need him. We have it backwards sometimes, like many people do, where we make creation all about us. For a long time, people thought the earth was the center of the universe. It is not. We're in danger sometimes of making ourselves into idols. We are born, we live, we die, and then we live eternally. Every single part of our existence on earth and in the afterlife is completely dependent upon our connection with God. Jesus is not some goofy, codependent caricature. He is the Word of God, the Lion and the Lamb, the Ancient of Days, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He is holy, He is righteous. He is blameless. He is the God of all peace. He is faithful. He is merciful. He is gracious. He's not a joke. He's not something to be mocked. He is the God of all creation. That is the dignity of Jesus Christ. The third thing that John emphasized was, number three, his activity. His activity. That Jesus Christ was eternally with God. John wrote in verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Some Christians have the idea that Jesus didn't exist before the incarnation. That Christmas Day, he just, wabo, magically showed up as a baby. And nobody had a clue what was going on. After all, if you were to ask the Jewish leaders then or even today, they would say, God has no son. Israel is God's son, and yet God does. John asserted that all of creation came into being through Jesus, 
Every star in the sky, every fish in the sea, every bird in the air, every animal scurrying across the ground, every person on the earth was made through Christ's will and pleasure, thus, in a very real sense, being owned by him. When I build a table in my wood shop, I determine every single aspect of that table's being. I choose the wood, I choose the shape, the unique characteristics of it, and the color that I'll paint it. And when the work is finished, I determine what will happen to it. If I'm displeased with it, and if I cannot fashion it into something useful, off it goes into the wood pile to be burned. If I can sell it, I, I, I get to choose what I do with it. So I can sell it, I can give it away, I can use it, or I can destroy it. It belongs to me. It bears my seal of ownership. If the wood is corrupted, if the wood is rotten, I will not let it in my home because it will not be able to bear the weight of the things that I will put on top of it. I, if I can't depend on it, I won't use it. Christ is the master. He is a carpenter. He was a carpenter by trade here on earth. He knows how to sand down the rough edges of our personality. For some of you who've been saved for a long time, you may recognize that you are not the person you are now that you were when you first got saved. When you first got saved, you were pretty rough around the edges. Okay? But when you walk with Christ and allow yourself to be discipled and, and surrender your life to Christ then he begins to sand those rough edges down, smooth things out, and you become a smoother person. Sweeter, hopefully. Sweeter as the days go by, as they say. He is always desiring to fashion us more and more into his image, his likeness, because humanity was originally created that way. Sin destroyed that connection. And God works to restore that back to its original intent. My boys and I, we, we built a kitchen table. Um, we, we have a large family, and we had a table that sat four people. And so we had to pick our favorite four that got to sit around the table. No, we just all crammed in there, and there was no elbow room, and it was really, really cramped. So, you know, when God gives you a big family, you build a bigger table. And so we built a big table. And when we finished the table, we flipped it over and we signed our names to it. It only exists because we put in the work. And when it was signed, I announced, it is finished. And it was. Nothing else was needed for this table to do what it was made for. Now it could just be. Christ longs for us to rest in his finished work at Calvary and just be with him. Be in his presence. Be at rest knowing that everything we need is found in him. The fourth and final thing that John emphasized was his unity. That Jesus Christ is one with God. John asserted in verse 1 that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God or is God. And four times 
in John's gospel, Jesus asserted his deity, that he was the Son of God. Some people say that Jesus never asserted his deity, that he never called himself God. He never referred to himself as God, yet he does four times in John's gospel. John 3, John 5, John 10, and John 11. 3, 5, 10, and 11, if you're writing that down. Four times in John's gospel, Jesus asserted his own deity. He received worship, and only God was allowed to do that. He said on several occasions that he and the Father are one. Now, if you'll remember the reaction to the, by the religious leaders, they, can, they said that's blasphemy because you're making yourself equal with God. But they were true, they were true statements. And he never went back on him. He never, he never was like, well, well, I mean, you know, I'm not one with God, but I mean, like, we're really close. We're tight. No, he never backed down on it. He said, I and the Father are one. And so we know that Jesus Christ is one with God since he is the Son of God. And what we do with Jesus determines what God does with us. What we do with Jesus determines what God does with us. The entirety of John chapter 5 is about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And catch this, two verses, John 5.23. If you want to write it down, John 5.23, Jesus said, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then John also wrote in 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever conf confesses the Son has the Father also. And so we understand John gives a clear and obvious uh, testimony that there is no way to heaven apart from Jesus. Jesus is in perfect unity with the Father. He is one with God because he is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. When we're drawn to thoughts of Christ this Christmas, don't relegate Jesus to just be a baby in a manger. He is so much more than that. He is the Lagos of God, the Word of God. He shares God's existence. God's eternity, and God's unity. He is the incarnation of God. God dwelling with us. God tabernacled with us. God in a body. God made flesh. He is the hope of the world. One author wrote, the only way that Christ is presently incarnated to a lost world is through us. We are carrying on and extending his presence, his word, and his works to a new generation. Now that Christ has been made known to the world through the incarnation, we are tasked with taking that message to the world, to all we come in contact with, that we carry his word, we carry his presence, and his works to the world so that the light of the world may be made known to those in darkness. I'm going to show a video, and then we will 
come back together in just a moment. I'll ask our ushers to come forward. If our worship team could come up. And if you would please stand. You may begin lighting the candles of our congregation. Speaking several hundred years ago. Well, actually several thousand years ago. It was actually several hundred years before, several hundred years before Christ was born. On this earth, the prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah chapter 9. He said, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice over you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his, I mean, okay, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice And with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' life and ministry. In John 8, 12, he declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told the people, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Today we light these candles to remind ourselves of the light we've received from Christ and the light we're commanded to shine so the world can see our great Savior. Join us in worshiping with one final song.